The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. We have read this text now a number of Sundays in a row. Uh, we're going we're to settle down here uh, for uh, another Sunday and, and another one after that. Uh, such an important passage, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 17. And then we will go to our New Testament reading for today, which is Revelation 21, 22 through to 22, 5. Uh, let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word, Genesis 2 beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided. It became four rivers. The name of the first was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the river Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Revelation 21, 22 and following. Revelation 21, 22. You know I select these passages because they correspond to one another. Uh, One will help us to understand the other typically. Revelation 21-22, we have a vision of the new heavens and the new earth here in this passage. We have a vision of the final state of things for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, This is what Christ has accomplished. This is what he has earned. Revelation 21, verse 22, here John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory of the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. 
and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us now uh, through the preaching of God's word. What made the Garden in Eden paradise? Was it the scenery? Uh, Was it the climate? Was it the lush trees, the savory food that was found in that place? Uh, Now, don't misunderstand. I do not doubt for a moment that the Garden in Eden was a very beautiful and pleasant place. But it was not the place that made Eden paradise. Instead, Eden was a paradise for the first man and woman because there they enjoyed the presence of God. In Eden, Adam and Eve lived in right relationship to God. In Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed communion with the God who made them. There was no sin in that place. There was no suffering. In Eden, there was no death, at least not of the human kind. And in Eden, there was God. God was present with the first man and woman. He walked with them and they with Him. And they were at peace It was God's presence in Eden combined with the absence of sin, suffering, and death that made the garden in Eden a paradise for the first man and woman. Man was made in the image of God in order to and for the purpose of communing with the God who made him. And in Eden, that communion was thoroughly enjoyed. Remember that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the earthly realm was at first without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In six days' time, God formed the earthly realm into a place that was suitable for human habitation. And after the earth was fully formed, God made man and gave him dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The man and woman were blessed by God. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This was the story of Genesis chapter 1. You should remember it well. But note this, the man and the woman were not to live independent from God. They were not to live autonomously, but were to go on living in continual dependence upon the God who made them. Man was to know his maker. Man was to commune with his God. Man was to live for the glory of God, and he was to enjoy him forever and ever. Now, while this truth that I have just communicated is not clearly established in the creation narrative of Genesis 1, It is clearly established in Genesis 2. It is the emphasis of the text. In Genesis 1, remember it is the transcendence of God that is emphasized. In Genesis 1, it is the distinction between creator and creature that is brought to the forefront. But in Genesis 2, 4 and following, we learn that the same God who in the beginning created the heavens and earth is the God who also relates to man. This is the God who enters into a relationship with the man that he has made. So that Elohim, the God of Genesis 1, is also Yahweh Elohim, the God of Genesis 2. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. God Almighty is relational. Not only did he create the earth to be a place for human habitation, but we learn in Genesis 2 that he also planted a garden to function as a sanctuary where the man and woman would enjoy his presence. 
This is the story of Genesis 2. It's here that we learn that God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And and here God is intimate. Do you see it? Uh, Not only did he speak the man into existence, but he forms him. He is hands-on, as it were. And he, after forming him from the dust of the ground, breathes into him the breath of life. And likewise, God formed the woman from the side of man. God himself planted a garden in Eden for them. And he took them and placed the man there. And he entered into a covenantal relationship with him. And so friends, the point that I am driving at here is that the garden in Eden was more than a garden. It was more than just a a lush place, a pleasant place filled with uh, beautiful things and, and tasty things. It was more than that. It was more than a garden for God's presence was there in that place. It was God's presence that made the garden in Eden paradise. God walked with Adam and Eve in that garden paradise. The garden in Eden, to put it differently, was a temple or a sanctuary where the glory of God dwelt and where man enjoyed communion with the God who had made him. How do we know all of this? How do we know this? That the garden in Eden was more than just a garden, but was in fact a temple or a sanctuary where the glory of God dwelt and where man enjoyed communion uh, with his maker. How do we know this? First, by paying careful attention to the description of the garden in the narrative of Genesis 2 and 3, we should be able to, to recognize and see that something special is going on in this place, that, that this is just not a nice place, but it is a, a temple or sanctuary where God and man commune with one another. Now, the context of Genesis 3, 8 through 9 is admittedly negative. Uh, Genesis 3, 8 through 9, the context is, is negative. For in that passage, God is found confronting man in his rebellion. It's not a pleasant text, really. A man has eaten of the forbidden fruit, and now God comes to him uh, to confront him in his sin. But the passage does prove the point that is now being made. Uh, There we read, And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so here in Genesis 3, 8, and 9, God walking in the garden and the presence of God brought terror to the man and the woman, so much so that they hid themselves in the garden. What were they thinking? Did they really think that they could hide from God Almighty? But why did they hide? It was because of their sin. When they were upright and holy, God's walking and God's presence amongst them were purely pleasant to the man and woman, for they stood then in a right relationship to God. They had no reason to flee from Him. He walked amongst them. He was present with them prior to their eating of the forbidden fruit. But then God's walking and God's presence in their midst was a purely pleasant thing. They enjoyed communion with God in uh, the Garden of Eden. Uh, When suggesting that the garden was a temple, I suppose we should ask the question, what makes a temple a temple exactly? In order for a temple to be a temple, does it have to have bricks and and stone? Uh, Does it have to be constructed as our buildings are now constructed? Uh, No, not at all. A temple is a temple 
because the presence of God is there. It is the presence of God that sets a place off as unique and distinct from all other places. A temple is that place where God is present in a pronounced way. A temple is a place where man may approach God to commune with Him. The Garden in Eden was just such a place. But someone might say, isn't God omnipresent though? Here you are talking about God's walking in the midst of us and God's presence. Isn't God omnipresent? Isn't He all places at all times? And indeed He is. Uh, There is nowhere that you may go to escape from the presence of God. This is what the psalmist is reflecting upon in Psalm 139 when he says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Here the psalmist is is reflecting upon God's omnipresence, that He is always everywhere. And this is a comfort to him, given that he was a faithful individual, one who had faith in the promised Messiah. God's presence was a comfort to him. But when I speak of God's presence as the distinguishing characteristic of a temple, I am of course saying that God is present within His temple in a unique and potent way. It is a place where His glory is manifest. It is a place where He shows Himself to be there, uh, present with His people. And so though it may be true that God is everywhere present, He was present in Eden in a pronounced way. There, man enjoyed communion with the God who made him. There, in that place, something of the glory of God was was manifest or made known. And so God's walking in the garden, his, his presence in that place, and his communion with the man and the woman all indicate that the garden in Eden was more than a lush garden, but it was, in fact, a temple or sanctuary where man beheld the glory of the Lord. How do we know that Eden was a temple first by paying careful attention to the description of the garden in the narrative of Genesis 2 and 3. So many more observations could be made, but time constrains us. Secondly, we learn that Eden was a temple when we compare it to the temple that Israel built according to the command of God. And here is where I really want you to pay attention, brothers and sisters. You should always pay attention, I suppose. But here, pay attention now. Uh, This is such an important point. In my opinion, this is where the matter is settled. Israel, as you know, was instructed to build a portable tabernacle and later a permanent temple. And this they were to do according to instructions given to Moses by God. And what was the purpose of the tabernacle and later the temple of Israel? What was its purpose? Was it not to show that Israel was God's chosen people? Was it not to show that God was present with them in a unique way? Was it not to show that God was in fact in covenant with Israel and in communion with them? Uh, Did not the temple and the tabernacle before it uh, say all of these things to Israel and to the nations who looked in upon them? Here, God's presence uh, is with the people of Israel. Their tabernacle and later their temple approved the point. And this is indeed what Leviticus 26, 11 and 12 teaches. Uh, there, God Himself speaks to Israel saying, I will make my dwelling among you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. 
So do you hear the language being used here in Leviticus chapter 26? The context has to do with the, the, the tabernacle uh, that Israel was to build. And here God is saying, I'm going to make my dwelling among you. I'm going to walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. The reader should immediately think of Eden when reading Leviticus chapter 26. In Eden, God dwelt with Adam and Eve. God was present in the garden with them. He walked amongst the first man and woman in that place. And now, so many years after the fall of Adam, God calls this people out of nothing, right? Makes a nation out of Abraham. And after redeeming them from bondage in Egypt, He speaks to Israel and He says to them, I'm going to make my dwelling among you. I'm going to walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And where did God in fact dwell within Israel? What what place did he take within Israel? Well, his glory filled that tabernacle and later that temple. There, the presence of God was seen. There, communion with God could be enjoyed. And so the people of Israel were were to come up to that temple to worship their God and to enjoy him. Uh, forever. We should remember, though, that Moses was the one who wrote Genesis, but he was also the one who wrote the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Uh, these five books are commonly called the Pentateuch. They were delivered to Israel by the hand of Moses and through Israel to us. They are meant, here is the point that I am making now, they are meant to be read together. We come to understand what the garden in Eden was, not only by reading Genesis 2 and 3, but the Pentateuch as a whole, as well as the rest of Holy Scripture, as we shall see. How do we know what the garden of of, of Eden was? What was that place all about? Well, the narrative itself uh, points us in the right direction, Genesis 2 and 3 does, but as we read on through Genesis and finish it and read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, we should be left without any doubt at all that the garden that God planted in Eden and placed the man there was more than just a lush garden. It was a temple. It was a sanctuary where the glory of God was present by the Holy Spirit where the first man and woman enjoyed communion with God. The tabernacle and temple of Old Covenant Israel were to be understood in this way. They were constructed according to the command of God given to Moses in order to function as a picture of the original creation and the original garden in Eden, which was itself a temple or sanctuary of God. Do you understand the point that I am making here? So here you have creation, and so many years afterwards you have the redemption of Israel from Egypt. They're told to build a tabernacle. What was that thing? Well, it was a little miniature replica of the cosmos. It was a little miniature replica of the heavens and earth. And it was a little miniature replica even of the Garden of Eden, which was the Holy of Holies and God's creation. The tabernacle and temple of Old Covenant Israel were to be understood in this way. They were constructed according to the command of God given to Moses to function as a picture of the original creation and the original garden in Eden, which was itself a temple or sanctuary for God. Um, Though I am not comfortable with all of Meredith Klein's ideas, he's a theologian uh, that that I read from time to time, and I do appreciate. I'm not comfortable with all of his ideas about Genesis 1 and 2. I do believe that he gets this right, And, and listen carefully to this quote from Klein. He says that God produced in Eden, in the garden there in Eden, 
a microcosmic version of his cosmic sanctuary. Are you listening now? Uh, God created the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. This he did in six days' time and rested on the seventh. Uh, what was the, the cosmos for? Was it not to function as a temple in its entirety uh, for God to dwell in? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, says the Lord. Okay. Was it not to function as a sanctuary for God? Was not the whole thing to become sanctuary? Was not Adam's job to push out the boundaries of the garden until it filled the whole earth? Uh, and so what Klein is saying here is that the garden in Eden was a microcosmic version of the cosmic sanctuary. The garden planted there was holy ground with guardianship of its sanctity committed in turn to men and to cherubim. Who was to guard? Uh, Eden. Adam was. He, was. he was to stand in guard of that place. Also, angels were present there, as we will see. It was the temple garden of God, the place chosen by the glory spirit who hovered over creation from the beginning to be the focal site of his throne presence among men. Eden had the character of a holy tabernacle, a microcosmic house of God. And since it, its glory was God himself who present in his theophanic glory, constituted the Edenic temple, man in the Garden of Eden could quite literally confess that Yahweh was his refuge and refuge, and the Most High was his habitation. Excuse me uh, for, for uh, stammering there. Uh, what Klein is saying is that there was not a temple in that place constructed of stone, but God himself was the temple. The glory of God filled that place so that man enjoyed the presence of God there in Eden. It was a little miniature version of the entire cosmos, and Adam's job was to push the boundaries of it out until the whole earth was filled with the glory of the Lord. I think he is right. Eden was made to function as a microcosm of the whole cosmos, which itself was created as a sanctuary for God. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool, says the Lord. And Israel's tabernacle and temple was created to function as a miniature version of the cosmos and of Eden. And so what was the message preached by the construction of the tabernacle of Israel and later the temple? What was the message preached by that, that building? Was it not this, that access to God, the Creator, may still be had? Why? How could access to God the Creator still be had? Because God the Creator is also God the Redeemer. He may be approached by His people, but now not without the shedding of blood, given the fact of sin. So we have fallen into sin. God would have done no wrong to leave us in our sin and to judge us. But here we see that this theme of temple or sanctuary continues on in the pages of Holy Scripture. And Israel, being God's chosen people, being brought from Abraham, being brought out of bondage and redeemed, is told to build this tabernacle. Right? There the glory of God descends upon that place. What is the message being preached except access to God? Communion with God is still possible. But what must we do in order to approach Him? Shed blood. Blood must be shed. Uh, this is what the old covenant people of God did continuously. They approached God to commune with Him, but not without the shedding of blood. Christ Himself shed His blood he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those old covenant sacrifices are no more. So it becomes clear that Eden was a temple when we compare it with the temple that Israel built according to the command of God. The temple of old covenant Israel was designed to function as a picture and miniature of the whole cosmos and of Eden. 
All three, the cosmos, the, the Garden of Eden, and Israel's tabernacle were temples constructed to house God, as it were, uh, to house His presence, to facilitate communion between God and man. Did you know that when God gave Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle, they were delivered to him in a series of seven speeches, beginning in Exodus 25.1 and concluding in Exodus 27.19. Just think about that for a moment. I, I know I've, I'm dumping on you a lot of information right now, rapidly. You, you should be used to it by now, though, right? What did God do at first in a series of seven? The creation of the heavens and the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh. Now Israel is told to build a tabernacle. And the instructions for that are delivered to Moses in a series of, of seven speeches. I think we're supposed to make a connection between original creation and and tabernacle. Also, did you know that there are similarities between the conclusions of the creation week and the conclusion of the construction of the tabernacle? On day seven of creation, what did God do? He ceased from his work and he entered into rest. And after God finished instructing Moses concerning the construction of the tabernacle, the Sabbath command was reiterated. See Exodus 31, 17. In fact, when the creation of the tabernacle was complete, the presence of the Lord settled or rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God took up residence in that place. He rested on that place. He descended upon it. So, again, clearly, the creation of the cosmos and the creation of the tabernacle, they they parallel one another. They're similar. And what do we see when we consider the actual construction of the tabernacle or temple? We see that the building itself was designed to function as a picture of, or as a miniature model of the heavens and earth and of God's original temple in Eden. Don't you wish you could have seen the thing? Uh, They do have reconstructions uh, sometimes of the tabernacle and of of the temple. Um, But wouldn't it have been amazing to actually see it as it originally was? The tent itself that was stretched over uh, the tabernacle to make it the tabernacle represented the heavens that God stretched out at the beginning of creation. The veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies represented the firmament which God created on day two of creation. The large bronze lavers which were crafted to hold water used for cleansing represented the seas or oceans that were formed on day three of creation. The lampstand symbolized the luminaries that were created on day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The winged cherubim which decorated the temple corresponded to the birds that were created on day five. And the consecration of the high priest corresponds to the creation of man on day six. On day seven of creation, God finished his work. He ceased and he blessed it. Do you remember that? And when the tabernacle was finished, the people ceased from their labor and Moses blessed it. And so the two activities correspond to one another. The two things do the cosmos that God created in the beginning and the tabernacle. Exodus 39, 32 and 43, hear it now. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses so that they did. And Moses saw all the work. It should sound familiar to you. And so Moses saw the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. He blessed them. This corresponds to the conclusion of the creation week. What I am saying is that when one compares the tabernacle that Israel built according to the command of God with creation in general and the garden in particular, it becomes clear that the tabernacle was to function as a miniature version of creation with the garden being symbolized by the holy of holies. The holy of holies. 
Many other comparisons could be made if we had the time. Consider the river that flowed out of Eden and the many prophecies that speak of a river flowing from the temple of God. Consider the precious stones that are mentioned in Genesis 2 and the fact that these precious stones were used in the temple of Israel for the worship of God. Consider how the images of angels adorned Israel's tabernacle. The tabernacle had images of angels all over it. In fact, uh, two of them guarded the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Also, the curtains that separated the holy place from the most holy place had cherubim or angels embroidered on them. And, and, how, and, and, and consider also how the angels were tasked with guarding the entrance to Eden after man's fall into sin. We have not gotten there yet in our study of the book of Genesis, but man will eat of the forbidden fruit, won't he? And he will eventually be banished from Eden, cast out of that place. And what did God do except set cherubim to guard the entrance into that place so that man might not come and eat of the tree of life? And what we see is that when the tabernacle is constructed according to the command of God, there the people of Israel would have walked in and they would have seen this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And what would they have been confronted with? guardian cherubim. Their saying, access to God has not been fully opened yet. Here you may enjoy communion with Him through the shedding of blood. Here the high priest may enter once a year, but access to God is still restricted to you because of man's fall into sin. It was a picture of Eden, is what I am saying. It was a picture of the Garden of Eden and the cosmos in general. If Israel's tabernacle and temple were designed to remind the worshiper of the cosmos in general and Eden in particular, then what message did this convey? Would not the message have been the cosmos and Eden were designed to be a sanctuary where man would commune with God? But man fell and was cast out, but God has been gracious. A way to commune with God is still available. Thirdly, we know that the garden in Eden was a temple when we observe how the new heavens and earth are described at the very end of the book of Revelation. Remember that the new heavens and new earth, which will be ushered in at Christ's return, are described at the end of the book of Revelation as being a temple. This might sound a little bit odd to begin with this, but first we read, And I saw no temple in the city. What what is meant by that? Uh, John is saying, I saw no temple, as in I saw no structure there. I didn't see a building, uh, a temple in the middle of that place. Uh, Jerusalem had a temple at at, at the middle of it. And he's saying, when I look at the new heavens and earth, I don't see that. I don't see a temple in the city. But it does not mean that there is no temple there. In fact, everything is temple. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In other words, the whole thing is temple. And what makes it a temple except for the presence of God, which fills the whole thing? Its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. The glory of God fills everything, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. It will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing ever unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice a few things about this eschatological end times temple. Notice that a river of life is seen flowing from the throne of God 
in Revelation 22.1, just as a river is said to have flowed from Eden in Genesis 2. Are you making the connection here? There's a river. It flows in Revelation from, from God himself and from his throne. When we go back and read the Genesis account, we see that there was a river flowing out of Eden. What is the suggestion then? What is the proper way to interpret Genesis 2? Is it not that God's presence was there in Eden? His throne was in that place, enjoyed by Adam and Eve as they approached him. The river flowed from the throne of God even then, at the beginning of creation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation 22.1 And remember that the tree of life is said to be in the new heavens and earth also. Uh, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so clearly we are to remember Eden when we see a depiction of the new heavens and earth in Revelation 21 and 22. The new heavens and earth will be a return to Eden, sort of. The new heavens and new earth will be a return to Eden, sort of. The garden in Eden was a temple, but clearly it was not the eschatological end times temple, for there are some very important differences between Eden and the new heavens and the new earth. I wonder if you can recognize them uh, quickly. There are differences between Eden and the new heavens and new earth. The similarities are obvious, but the differences are important. One, notice that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil in that place. Thanks be to God. Uh, The time of testing has ended. Adam failed the test. Christ passed. No more tree of testing in the new heavens and new earth. So there is no chance of of us falling again from our place of glory in the new heavens and new earth, because Christ has accomplished our redemption. Two, the whole earth is described as Eden in the new heavens and new earth. And so what began as a small garden plant in in Eden, Adam having been given the task to expand that thing to the ends of the earth, that task is now accomplished by whom? Christ Jesus, our Lord, the second Adam. When John looks and he sees the new heavens and new earth, he describes the whole earth as being filled with the glory of God. The whole thing is now temple. The whole thing is now Eden. Three, it is the glory of God and the Lamb that will fill that place. Think about this for just a moment. It is the glory of God and the Lamb that will fill that place. In Eden, it was the glory of God that filled that place, but now in the new heavens and new earth, it will be the glory of God And the Lamb. Who is the Lamb a reference to? Jesus, the Christ. Was Jesus the Christ needed in the garden in Eden prior to the fall? No. There was no Christ needed. He was foreordained and foreknown from before the foundations of the earth, of course. But there was no sin. It was the glory of God that filled Eden. But in the new heavens and new earth, it will be the glory of God and the Lamb that will fill that place. Why? Because Christ is the one who has accomplished our redemption. He is the one who has brought us into a right standing with God Almighty. We may come to Him, but only through faith in the Christ, through the shed blood of the Lamb. In the new heavens and earth, if the new heavens and earth are described as a sanctuary where God and man commune with one another, And if the new heavens and earth are described in Edenic terms, as with images of Eden in them, then Eden Eden must have also been a sanctuary also. Fourthly and lastly, we understand that Eden 
was a temple, when we recognize that the theme of temple runs throughout the pages of Holy Scripture from beginning to end. The earth was, function, was created to function as a sanctuary for God. Eden was the first holy of holies. When man fell, access to the holy of holies was denied to him. Cherubim were set to guard the entrance. The story of redemption which follows can be described in terms of God reestablishing and making permanent and sure man's enjoyment of the garden sanctuary of God forever and ever. This is a story of redemption. Cast out of the garden because of sin, but now God, because of His grace and mercy, is going to make a way for sinners to commune with God even still. The patriarchs, uh, prior to Moses, they built altars to worship God. This they did amongst trees and on mountaintops. These were temples in miniature. Israel built the tabernacle under Moses and the temple under Solomon. Here God walked amongst His people. Here people enjoyed His presence. And when Christ came, the temple of stone was declared by Him to be desolate. Now through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the one who has faith in Christ is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. The one who has faith in Christ is said to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Also the church is said to be the temple of God under the new covenant. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And you are that temple, 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. When Christ returns, all of creation will be temple, for the glory of God and of Christ will fill all. So do you see the theme of temple? A temple at the beginning, lost, but the temple of God regained through the process of redemption, through the story of redemption, through the sending of the Christ. Uh, this was God's design from the very beginning. The cosmos were created to function as a sanctuary where man would enjoy the presence of God forever and ever. Now, brothers and sisters, as I move to conclude and, and towards application, I do understand that it is possible when you're listening to all of this information being disseminated to you to say, heirs, what's the point? And if that is your attitude towards all of this, I would say, you need to think more carefully about these things. You need to ponder them. What we are here saying is that God made man in order to commune with Him in such a way so that we might commune with Him. You were made to know God. This is what it means to be made in the image of God, in part, that you are able to correspond to the God who made you. You are made to know God, to commune with Him, to live enveloped by His presence, and to bask in His glory. I am convinced of it that you will find no peace or ultimate satisfaction until you have a right relationship with God and that you know Him. Do you know God? Are you at peace with God? I do not mean by this question, do you, do you feel at peace with God? That is not what I asked you. I think there are plenty of people in this world who go about and they feel just fine about themselves. I feel at peace with God. But what I asked is, are you at peace with God? Are you in a right relationship with Him? And if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you do not have faith in Him, and you are not walking with Him, the answer to that question is no, according to the Word of God. If you are not in Christ, then you are an enemy of God. You are in Adam, the first one. You with Him have been banished from the temple garden. 
of God. You have been put out from it. There is no access for you into fellowship with with God Almighty. Are you at peace with God? Are you in a right relationship with Him? If you are not in Christ, the answer to that question is no. You are a child of wrath. You are His enemy. But if you have faith in Christ, if you are approaching God through the shed blood of Christ, through the second Adam, through the redemption that He has accomplished, trusting only in Him, then the answer to that question is yes. You are at peace with God. In fact, so much so that God has made you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a temple. His temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean except that you enjoy, in some measure, the presence of God with you? You you can relate to Him. You you can know Him. Uh, You can enjoy Him, beginning even, even now. Even now. Are you in a right, right relationship with God? Or are you a child of wrath under His judgment because of your sin? It is only possible through faith in Christ. He accomplished what Adam failed to do. He opened the way into the eschatological end time, new heavens and new earth, Eden for us. If you are in Christ, do you realize that you are God's temple? You are God's temple personally. And the question that must be asked of you is, are you living holy now? Are you, are you taking this seriously? That, that because of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, the faith that He has given you, the gift of the Holy Spirit, you are, you are God's temple. Are you living holy before Him then? Or are you defiling God's temple through your way of life, through your conduct? Are you defiling God's temple through the language that you use, through the thoughts that you think, through the way that you treat other people? Are you defiling God's temple? If you claim to be a Christian and you are living in sin, then you are, in fact, defiling God's temple. And God's warnings are very stern concerning that. If anyone defiles my temple, I'll destroy him, he says. We should take these warnings very seriously. We are God's temple collectively also as a church. This is the way that the New Testament speaks concerning the local church. You are temple of the Holy Spirit, God's temple. And we must ask ourselves the question collectively, are we living holy? Are we living holy as as God's people? Brothers and sisters, what an incredible theme this is that runs from Genesis to the very end of Revelation. I hope you are able to understand something of God's purpose for us then as His creatures. We were not made to live independent from Him or autonomous from Him, but we were made by Him to live in continual dependence upon Him, enjoying His presence forever and ever. Uh, May the Lord accomplish this, that He would draw each one in this room to personal faith in Christ so that we might have a right relationship with Him once more. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is so rich and beautiful. Help us to think correctly concerning these early chapters of the book of Genesis. They seem to some, I'm sure, to be uh, children's fairy tales, but we see these uh, as sacred truth. Uh, We thank you for these stories, which are in fact true, which help to build for us a foundation to stand upon. Lord, may we see ourselves correctly, May we know that you made us with you. Uh, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work amongst us. If there are any here who do not yet know Christ, who are not walking in him, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them and draw them to repentance, Lord. We are asking for those of us who are in Christ, Lord, help us to walk in a manner that is worthy. Help us to live holy before you. Lord, may we take seriously the work you have done in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, your presence with us, Lord. May we live holy as individuals. And each Lord's Day when we gather together as your people, I pray that you would help us to come with reverence, 
knowing that it is you that we approach through Christ Jesus our Lord, crucified and risen. It's in his name that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.